we are going to read in verses 1 through 7 today. I'll read it aloud. You can follow along with me in your Bible or on the screen. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Join me in prayer. Lord, we turn again to you, the God whose word we just heard. Father, thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. Thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who desires to be known. Thank you that in your word you reveal to us your purposes and your plans. Thank you that even in narrative and history, Uh, We can see things that you have preserved for us that we are meant to consider today as we endeavor to live as Christians in this world. Thank you that you have thus far been with us in our series on Acts, and we ask for you today to please uh, give us special grace again, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Help us to, Lord, as we hear, also to become doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. God, I pray you'd minister to us today by your spirit. Please give me help as your speaker and all of us as your listeners. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being seated. Luciano Pavarotti, Luciano Pavarotti, or more commonly known as Pavarotti, was a world-renowned opera singer, tenor opera singer, from Modena, Italy. If you don't know opera, you might not know him, but you probably have heard him before. At an early age, Luciano discovered a love for music and began taking vocal lessons, partly due to the influence of his father, Fernando, who was a baker, but also a tenor singer in local choirs in town. But like any good parent, his mother knew that uh, 
going into music probably isn't going to pay the bills, and all the musicians in the room will say amen. So she convinced him to go to school to become a teacher. And so he went to college to learn how to teach, and after graduating, he took on a job as an, as an elementary school teacher, and he taught there for several years, but uh, he grew dissatisfied in his, his teaching, his calling at the time, and Pavarotti had a decision to make. And so he did what good sons do, they go to their father, and he said, Dad, I, I, I have a decision to make. Should I be a teacher or a singer. And so Fernando thought about it for a little bit, and he replied, Luciano, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall in between them. In life, you must choose one chair. In other words, don't be distracted by something good to the detriment of something better. Luciano chose his chair, and after many difficult years of study and focus and hard work, he became who he is today, and as an older man looking back over his many years of success, he would say, whatever we do, whether it's laying bricks or writing a book, we should give ourselves to it. Choose one chair. And even if opera isn't your thing, you'll be hard-pressed to find a voice like Luciano Pavarotti's. The topic I'd like to bring to your attention this morning is The Undistracted Church. It's also the title of this message, The Undistracted Church, and specifically a church that is undeterred in its mission to make much of Jesus by its worship and its witness. Such a description, the undistracted church, characterized the early church in Jerusalem. We've been seeing that this church is growing by the day. Day by day, the Lord is adding more disciples. And yet, day by day, it seems as though the devil, Satan, the adversary, is at work to try to destroy this work that God is doing, this church that God promised he would build. Satan hates the church. I can't say it more strongly. He hates you. He hates Grace City Church. He hates all the faithful churches in this town. He hates all the churches in the world. But he hates the church. He hates the body of Christ. He hates when the church is faithful in her worship of God and in particular in her commitment to God's word. And he hates it when she is faithful in her witness to her community. And so as we've seen, Satan has already tried to pull out some of his fiercest weapons in this early church. We saw in chapter 4, he pulled out first the weapon of persecution. And at that time, it was more of an inconvenience when the apostles were arrested. But then that didn't work. And so in chapter 5, he pulled out the weapon of deception. And he put it in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts to try to bring discord and deception into the church. But when that didn't work, 
that proved to be ineffective, he brought more persecution. This time it wasn't just inconvenient persecution. It was painful persecution. And the 12 apostles experienced that on their backs. But this proved to be still ineffective. In fact, all these means of weapons simply strengthened the resolve of the church. So in chapter 6, the adversary is trying yet again. Here, with a more subtle tack, I can imagine Uncle Screwtape uh, saying to his nephew Wormwood from the Screwtape letters, nephew, is there a way that we can deter the apostles from preaching the word? Is there a way we can worm ourselves in subtly? Can we get them to focus on maybe something good so that their devotion to God's priorities suffers? What can we use? Well, the church has to pick a chair because there's something good going on here, a need that's good. It's a good need. It's a need that must be fulfilled, let's say it that way. But the apostles have a priority. They have to pick a chair. And Grace City Church, we too have to pick a chair. We must pick a chair. As as a growing church, the question for us is, are we devoted to God's priorities? Are we undistracted and undeterred both corporately and privately in our mission to make much of Jesus in our worship and in our witness? To say it simply, am I devoted to God's calling on my life? Or do I find myself distracted even with good things? But that deter me from being faithful where he has me. Am I trying to sit on two chairs and yet falling through both of them? In Acts chapter 6, the early church provides for us a model to help us remain undistracted in our mission to make much of Jesus. Specifically, they had two priorities that kept them undeterred from the devil's distractions. And how fitting is this passage on Deacon Sunday as we install Sean and Brian as our first deacons. But friends, this is not just for them. This, these lessons, these priorities, these things that the church teaches us, these are for all of us, whether or not we are called to the formal office of deacon or elder. If you're a note taker, by the way, I'll just say this. This is a very practical message. I don't usually say that, but get your notes out because that, especially in the application points, we'll, we'll try to give you some practical things, okay? So let's talk about these two priorities. The first is the priority of God's will. The priority of God's will. You recall from our study of Acts thus far in chapter 4, that one predominant characteristic of a church under the influence of the gospel of grace is that it has all things in common. It is willing to share with anyone in need among its membership. Unprompted, we have seen the members of the church in Jerusalem sell their goods and then give the proceeds of that 
sailed to the general fund for the apostles to distribute where it was needed most. So generosity and brotherly love is the fruit of any community that is filled with the Spirit and is humbled by the self-giving love of our Savior Jesus. But it seems that like any church filled with sinners, yep, this is a church filled with sinners. If I had a mirror, I'd be staring at myself. Every church is filled with sinners. Even the most gospel-centered, spirit-filled church in history, the Jerusalem church, is tempted sometimes to lose sight of God's calling to love one another. And we see that here. What's going on? What's the situation in the early church? Well, apparently a complaint had been lodged that a certain group of widows was being overlooked in the daily food distribution. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But the care of widows is a concern that is very close to the heart of God. It always has been. We see this all the way back in the Old Testament in passages like Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 18, the law that God gave to the Israelites. There's much in there about his love for the widow and the orphan. Paul will later specify in 1 Timothy 5 a, a plan for widow care in the church at Ephesus. Of course, James tells us in his first chapter how much the widow and orphan is a concern in God's heart. And in the early church, there was a regular practice, apparently, to take a regular distribution or allotment of food and distribute it out to the believing widows in that particular church, because as we've been saying, there was no social welfare system in the first century. Uh, and of course, those who are in the church without family uh, was, was, uh, needed help by the church that was around them. And so it was the church's responsibility to care for these widows. Now, of course, at this point, we know the early church is made up mainly of Jews, right? The church is in Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish world. So it is two segments of Jews that are at the center of this dispute. Luke says in verse 1 that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists, or the Grecian Jews, had a beef with the Hebraic Jews. In other words, the Grecian Jews, those were those who were likely raised in a Greek-oriented culture due to their, to their family's dispersion around the Roman Empire. This group probably spoke Greek as their first language, and they were influenced by a Greek culture. Remember, we met Barnabas in chapter 4. He was a Grecian Jew from Cyprus. The Hebraic Jews, that were, that's those that were from Palestine were immersed in Hebrew culture, they were raised in Hebrew culture, and probably spoke Aramaic as their first language. Well, for whatever reason, these two, let's say, cultures in this church uh, started to butt heads. And the Hellenistic Jews saw that their widows were being passed over in the daily distribution by the, the Hebraic Jews. Luke doesn't tell us why this was happening. We can only speculate but this led to a complaint. That word in verse 1 for complain means to murmur or to grumble. And if we read between the lines, we can see that this complaint was probably lodged against the apostles because 
They were the ones in charge of the daily distribution. And friends, we can, in some sense, we can relate with this, can't we? There are different cultures and different backgrounds in every single church. We all have different upbringings, different backgrounds in our religious upbringing, different ethnic backgrounds, and those things shape our worldview, and sometimes those things lead to tension between brothers and sisters. So what we have here is the first recorded complaint of the Christian church, and it's one that needs administrative attention. Now, what's surprising to me, and maybe it's surprising to you too, is that according to the apostles, the neglect of widows in the church is not the biggest issue. They see this complaint as indicative of a more pressing situation and one that must be resolved because the well-being of the entire church and of the mission itself depends on it. How do I know that? Well, let's look at verse 2. The 12 gather the whole church, probably in Solomon's portico again, and they, they say it is not right. Literally, that word means appropriate. It's not appropriate that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So what are the apostles saying? Well, let's, let's understand what they're not saying. They are not saying that the neglect of the Hellenistic widows is no big deal. A big part of the apostles' ministry to the church thus far has been to organize care for those in need. This is a real concern here. This is not a fake concern. This is a real concern. They are also not saying that the ministry of serving tables is an inferior work that they can't lift a finger to do. Jesus showed these men repeatedly what a ministry of interruption looks like to stop and spend time with sinners and tax collectors and blind men and ailing women. Jesus showed them what it means to serve and how important it is to be interrupted sometimes. Their response to the complaint is about something deeper than that, something bigger. It's about obedience to Jesus' command that he gave to them to be there, to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus gave them their chair. This is a matter of priority. Aligning with God's will for the sake of the ministry that he's called them to, which is a ministry of the word. And this includes teaching it to the church for its growth and protection and to the lost for their evangelization. That is their priority. And because their priorities are in the right place, they are able to discern between what is necessary and what is merely expedient or practical. And they will not be distracted from this calling, friends. Too much is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Distraction, no matter how good a distraction, will lead to the gospel stagnation. There's a lesson here that the apostles teach us. When our priorities, that is the things that we give our attention most to, when our priorities align with God's will for us, we won't be distracted by peripheral concerns. 
Friends, because these men know they are in God's will, there is no confusion about the specifics of God's work. And so they give their full attention to the vocation that he has called them to. Now that term vacation, vocation, ooh, not vacation, just change one letter. Who needs a vacation? Huh? Okay, yeah. Vocation is a little more boring to talk about, but man, it's everything. Vocation is not something that we typically think a lot about. Oftentimes you hear that term, you think about you know, what a professional ministry or whatever it is. John Piper had to write a book and tell us, brothers, we are not professionals. That term vocation is a historically important word that was really rejuvenated, revived around the time of the Reformation. The word vocation derives from the Latin term, which simply means calling, calling. As Christians, our vocation, our calling is, listen, wherever God calls us to live out our faith for Jesus and in Jesus as an extension of his hands and his feet in the world. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. To speak of our calling, to speak of God's will, is a biblical idea. And our vocation, primarily, is to love God and our neighbor wherever we are. The apostles teach us here that if we want to stay focused on what matters to God and not be distracted by good things to the detriment of better things, then we must understand this idea, this theology of vocation. This is a subject that, whether we like to talk about it or not, really does fill up a lot of our mental space, a lot of our prayer life. Who in this room is not thinking about what they're supposed to do tomorrow? Who in this room is not planning for the future? Who in this room is not thinking about the summertime or next year or 10 years from now? We all think about these matters. What does God want me to do with myself? Gene Veith is a Lutheran author and professor that's written a lot about Christian vocation. And in his book, The Spirituality of the Cross, he really gives us two really simple questions to help us discern our vocation. First question, where has God placed me now? Second question, how does this position me to serve others? Really simple question. Where has God placed me now? And how does this placement position me to best serve others? Again, often we think about our future what we hope to do later, our dreams. But yet we fail to realize so often, don't we? Friends, that God has providentially positioned us right here where we are to be in service to him. Within our roles that he's given to us, I think about my roles. My roles are Christian, husband, father, pastor, friend, family member, you have a handful too within your roles by using the talents and the spiritual gifts that he's given to you inside the circumstances 
that he's placed you in. That's your vocation. And oftentimes, since it's the Lord who ordains our steps, he'll put people into our lives to direct us. Maybe we're offered a job, or maybe, hey, here's a person that wants to marry me, so that may be a good direction. Or maybe a church member or an elder has suggested that I would be best, be best used in this particular area. So maybe God's calling me to a specific service, like what we see here in Acts 6. But ask these questions, friends. Where has God placed me, and how does this best position me to serve? C.J. Mahaney, which is, who's my former pastor, has taught us a lot, taught me and Aaron a lot about uh, our roles and responsibilities and biblical productivity. He says this. He says, take a moment to look down at your feet. This is a very C.J. statement. Take a moment to look down at your feet. Go ahead, look. For most of us, our feet are currently resting within the geographic circle of God's calling on our lives. In the future, God may call you outside that circle, but that is for another time. Friends, that sphere that you occupy now, whether it's the workplace or the kitchen or the classroom, this chair, this space, this circle, God has assigned to you now, now, to enable you to make much of Jesus and love your neighbor faithfully, no matter how humble the calling is. Friends, that means we can, listen, that means we can answer phones and empty bedpans and flip burgers and wipe babies' bums and serve widows with joy, with gratification, with fulfillment. Why? Because providential love wills for us to be here. And friends, might I just add, if, if our, our, our church, our church should be one of our most fulfilling circles, if your geographic circle is membership in Grace City Church, I want to encourage you to be all in. Whatever you do, do it with all your might to the glory of God. And if you can't do that, then maybe God has another circle he wants for you to be in. But friends, if we know God's will, there's going to be no confusion about his work. We won't be distracted by good things to the detriment of the better. So priority number one, the apostles knew God's will. Priority number two, the priority of the word. Verse three, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint this duty to them but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice that the apostles don't stay in their lane, so to speak, to the neglect of genuine need in the church. This is an admin problem that needs to be solved, and so they offer a solution. And so they ask the whole church to survey the membership directory and to select seven men who are both sensible and spiritual to delegate this task to. These seven men are the first of what will later become, as Aaron said, the diaconate, the formal office or role of deacon, whose, again, qualifications Paul lists in 1 Timothy 3. Also, the elders are listed there. The word in verse 2 for serve is diakonia. That's where we get the word 
deacon from, and variations of this word are used throughout the New Testament to describe both men and women who fill this role of servant. The apostles say, listen, choose men that are well-respected in the church, who are notably filled with the Spirit and wisdom. Don't just pink, pick, pick warm, willing bodies. You need to be specific. You need to be strategic. He says, choose men that are well-respected. Because clearly there's some discord stirring as a result of this situation. So choose men whose advice and opinions will be received by both parties. That's why Paul will later write in 1 Timothy 3 that deacons must be dignified, as Aaron read, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Friends, deacons, servants are honest and faithful and godly. The church ought to be able to look to these men for help when its elders are tending to more pressing matters. Secondly, they need to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Because all work done in the name of Jesus is a spiritual work. And no work of the Spirit will succeed if it is done in the power of the flesh. Deacons are Spirit-filled. They are to walk in the Spirit and by grace exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in their lives and ministries. And friends, this is why we chose Sean and Brian for this early diaconate at Grace City Church. They exhibit this fruit, not perfectly, but faithfully. And Sean and Brian, I want to call you to always be examining yourselves. Many people may be qualified for the office of deacon, but far too many don't stay qualified. That's true of both elders and deacons. We need help to remain faithful to the Lord and Grace City Church. Now that you know these men by name and they've been commissioned as deacons, pray for them. Encourage them. I promise you, they have targets on their backs. Pray for them and watch their lives because we can learn from them. So with this solution offered, the church makes their selection. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, verse 5 and they chose Stephen and Philip, and so on. And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Now, what's not as clear in the English is that all seven of these names are Greek names. These, the church did a good job here. These men are well chosen. Who better to form a properly managed ministry of practical care especially with Grecian widows in mind, than men who share a similar cultural background. They presented these men then to the apostles. They prayed over them and commissioned them for the work. And verse 5 says, this was pleasing to everyone, which signifies that God's grace was upon this decision. So admin problem solved. But do you see why it was necessary that they solve this problem. Friends, please note that this account is not mainly a guide for selecting good servants, good deacons to serve in a church. The point of this account is that without servants in place, the ministry of the word suffers. The ministry of the word can be set aside 
And when those who are charged with heralding the word are distracted from their work, listen, the church will be in danger. You see, friends, a church may have qualified godly leaders and yet still drift in its mission to make much of Jesus. If there is one tactic our enemy uses successfully to distract the church, it is most certainly to convince us that what is urgent ought to always be prioritized over what is important. And yet, what could be more urgent than feeding church members that are hungry and poor? It's a practical need. Still yet, what is more important than ensuring that they are taught the word and guarded by the word? Spiritual. Someone asks, why are you pitting? Why are you pitting the practical against the spiritual? Don't, don't mishear me if that's your question. Both are necessary. Both demand servants. The word used in verse 2 for serving tables is the same root as verse 4 and the ministry of the word. They're both servants. They're both serving roles, and both roles demand spirit-filled servants to fulfill them. The only difference is that each role requires different giftings, different callings. One serves tables, the other serves truth, or both. We'll see that next time with Stephen. The apostles simply recognize the calling that God has called them to is the most important, and there are others that are called to the urgent task. You see the difference? Eric Alexander, a Scottish pastor, writes this, it would be difficult to exaggerate the importance of this brief passage in Acts 6. Its relevance for us is quite simple. It is that among our greatest needs in the contemporary church is a similar reformation and a comparable reassessment of our priorities. The establishment of priorities is always a vital issue simply because we all suffer from limitations, whether of energy, time, money, or other resources. To fail to establish clear priorities means that we become the servant of whatever pressure group is strongest or most persuasive. Do you see that in your own life? In your own personal life? Sadly, it happens in churches all over the world. I talk to pastors frequently who are pulled aside to do clerical or administrative work. And as a result, the study of the word and prayer for the church suffers. The second lesson the apostles teach us is that the local church must prioritize the ministry of the word if it is to remain undistracted in its mission to make much of Jesus. We must prioritize the word. Why? Because a church is healthy only to the degree that its leaders teach the word to it. A healthy pulpit built on the foundation of the Bible and prayer produces a healthy church. How so? Three quick reasons. Number one, because according to Jesus himself, it's the word that sanctifies us. 
The apostles, John 17, 17, the apostles knew that word-saturated, prayer-fueled ministry is the primary means that God changes and protects and feeds his church through. And we know this because over and over again in Acts, everywhere the word is faithfully preached and saturates a community, it grows healthy. Friends, do we want to be healthy? I'm not talking about with your exercise regimen. I'm talking about spiritually. Do you want to be spiritually healthy? Second reason, that same word is what will keep the church from turning away from the truth. Paul talks a ton about this. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching and will turn away from the truth and will wander into myths. Friend, don't you think the time is now? It's now. Your friends and family have wandered into myths. And this isn't true across the board, but it's probably because of the church that they're a part of or not a part of. Three, that same word is the means by which the lost are saved. Paul says to Timothy, it's the sacred scripture that makes one wise for salvation. If Timothy kept a close watch on his life and his teaching, he would save both himself and those who listened to him. 1 Timothy 4.16. This early church understood that the word feeds and guards the church and saves the lost. And because they knew that their ministry could not be effective apart from God's help. They were men of prayer. When you didn't see them preaching on Solomon's portico, they were in the prayer closet. We had a wonderful elders retreat this past week. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for giving financially so we could do that. And you know what the best part of the week was for me? I could say that for all of us. The best part of our time spent was that we were able to go through every single name in this church and pray for you by name. I I, I say that not to boast, but to tell you that that's what God's called us to. And it fills us with joy when we can do that. Man, that was the best part. Naming every single person and everything God brought to mind. Oh, man, to clothe you in prayer, that's our desire. We can't do that when we're distracted. We see the result in verse 7 of this dedication, this undistracted commitment to the will of God and the word of God. And the word continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the first of six summary statements in the book of Acts. Each of these statements indicate an advancement in the word or the church or both, and each of them are tied to critical events in the storyline. And through them, what's God doing? God is showing that neither man nor devil can stop the advance of God's kingdom. And what happened? The gospel has filled Jerusalem. Acts 1.8 is beginning to come true. Go into all the world preaching the gospel beginning in Jerusalem. Next step. Next stop, Judea, then Samaria, 
before we're done with Acts, the ends of the earth. Don't miss that little footnote there. A large number of priests trusted Christ. Probably some priests who were present at the apostles' whipping and beating. What's the point? The point is that God blessed this church's healthy priorities by saving many, even those we would say are difficult to save. In other words, if I could put my whole sermon in a sentence, distraction from God's priorities slows the word in a city and in a church and in a Christian, but devotion to God's priorities grows the word in a city, in a church, in a Christian. It's said that Yogi Berra, who was one of the greatest catchers of, in baseball history, sometimes had a little fun at home plate trying to distract batters as they came up to the plate. In 1958, when Berra's Yankees, blah, faced the Milwaukee Braves in the World Series, the Braves' power hitter, Hank Aaron, came to the plate. Aaron took his stance, and Berra started his chatter. Hey, Henry, you're holding the bat upside down. Flip it over. Flip it over. You'll be able to, to read the trademark. Aaron didn't say anything. But when the next pitch came, hit out into the left field bleachers. Aaron probably strode the bases a little more pompously. I don't know if he did. But he tagged home plate and he looked at Berra in the eye and he said, I didn't come here to read. Grace City Church, what are we here for? Why are we here? Why has God providentially brought you into this geographical circle of Grace City Church? I do know one reason. I do know that he wants every member of this body to help ensure that the ministry of the word and prayer is prioritized while also not neglecting the ministry of tables. For this reason, for us to continue making much of Jesus in our worship and our witness, it's so vital, friends, that we recover a proper theology of vocation. Friends, wherever we are now, wherever you are now, this is the chair, this is the circle where God intends for you and me to bring us, bring him the greatest glory. Yes, God may call each of us to another vocation at some point in the future, but unless he makes it abundantly clear or unless we're in violation of his written word, we must stay seated. We must stay seated. And so I want to end this with my few minutes left with just a few suggestions for how we can pick a chair. The first thing, really easy, is to sign up for the Exploring Grace City class in a couple of weeks. I want to call on you, if you're not already a member, to become a member here. Membership is a privilege that best positions every one of us to serve the Lord with joy. 
And we call on our members and we give them special tasks of serving because as the representative of this local body, you have been commissioned by God in this chair, in this geographic circle to make much of Jesus in a way that non-members cannot. Secondly, I think, I, don't, I could speak for you, brother, but forgive me if this is out of line. I'd love to see many more deacons at Grace City Church. And you may be called to serve, and you may never be a deacon, and you may never get that title. These guys don't even want the title. But it's biblical, so we had to do it. But there are lots of ways. As I look out over this church, I see men and women who are full of the Spirit men and women of good repute, who have a good reputation in the community and in this church, and you already do much to serve this body. What a joy it is to walk alongside each of you. But yet there are still tables that need to be served. There are still tables that don't have waiters and waitresses, if I could put it that way. Friends, listen, we are not here to, to read we are not here to receive. God wants to teach us the beauty of the ministry of interruption for the sake of others in this body. So here's a few ideas. If you're a, an older, mature member, and I'll say older, over the age of 40, more than half of Grace City Church, if not, yeah, definitely more than half, is under the age of 30. There are a lot of young men and young women who desire discipleship and accountability and wisdom? Are you able to offer an hour once a month? Some of you are already doing this. An hour once a month to spend time with a younger man or woman here who's trying to figure things out. To all of us, there are a few folks in this body who spend a lot of time alone. You feel led to visit them maybe once in a while. Praise God, there are a growing number of babies here. Can you offer an hour once a month to serve in the preschool room on a Sunday? And let me just say, on behalf of Sharon, this is a great need here. An hour once a month to hold a baby. Or maybe there's a family you can go spend some time with at their house for an hour or two so that the parents can spend a night out. Or... There's a growing number of administrative tasks that we pastors need to be freed from. Confession, I love administration, so I can get really bogged down by administrative things. And in a church plant, that does sometimes happen. But I've already put it out there, we need someone who's gifted in graphic design. I need your help. I can't make these beautiful slides for the rest of my life. I want to, but I can't. I can't be distracted by it. I shouldn't be distracted by it. Maybe you see a table that's not being served at all. And you ask yourself, could I serve there? Or at the very least, can I find others who are gifted and could possibly serve there? And friends, if you see a need, here's, here's what I ask you to do. Don't complain like the Hellenists. Come see us. Tell it, hey, I see a need here. Can I help with this? Can I help someone else help with this? Yes is the answer. There's a youth ministry that's in the offing. We need your help with that. 
Finally and lastly, I would just ask you to continue to pray for your pastors and to continue to encourage your pastors. Again, it's not dramatic to say that we also have a target on our backs. The enemy hates this church and he hates the word of God. And one of the greatest weapons I have discovered in pastoral ministry is the weapon of discouragement. Encourage us. Help us keep devoted to the word and prayer by praying for us. And thank you for the ways that you do this. So friends, let's pray. But here's how we'll close. Whatever you do, whether you lay bricks or empty a bedpan, do it all to the glory of God. And we will be filled with joy. And the church and the word will grow. Amen.